The United Nations Climate Conference, COP27, held in Sharm el-Sheikh in November, resulted in a landmark agreement to develop a dedicated fund to assist developing countries in responding to loss and damage as a result of climate change. A delegation of local leaders traveled to Egypt to participate in the conference and will share their experience and observations about global climate change negotiations. This panel discussion was preceded by a keynote address by World Wildlife Fund Global Freshwater Lead Scientist, Dr. Jeff Oberman. Please enjoy the forum. Great, thank you very much for that introduction. And uh, it's great to be here, uh, and particularly finding out that it's the centennial of this uh, organization that's really uh, fun to be part of that centennial year. Um, so I'll be talking about climate, nature, and water, intertwined challenges and intertwined solutions. This is a photo from Pakistan from uh, in uh, last year, and you may have heard of the historic floods that occurred in Pakistan um, at, 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 the, at the height, about one-third of the country's land area was underwater. Um, a few thousand people died. Hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people were displaced. And the water w was there for months and months. It was a, a major, major dis disruption to this country's GDP. Um, and it's a really um, a telling story about these intertwined challenges, because it's not just that a flood happened, that there's all these interacting uh, risks and challenges that have come together, and that's the, the heart of what I'll be talking about. Now, I don't expect you to read these. I understand that's um, not c super clear on, on the screen there, but the World Economic Forum just came out with their um, global risks for 2023, and they also came out with a term called polycrisis, and I just came across that term, and I was you know, using different term. I was talking about these intertwined challenges of water, nature and climate, but really it's a polycrisis. It's what the World Economic Forum identified as a set of interacting crises that will affect people, uh, current crises and future crises. And it takes, uh, we'll have to rise to the occasion to, to meet these kinds of crises. So today I'll be specifically talking about the polycrisis of climate, nature, and water. I'll be talking, and because this is, you know, the Council on World Affairs, Cleveland Council on World Affairs, I want to be focused on what are the insights of these kinds, these aren't just nature uh, biodiversity crises, these are actual security, global security, national security crises as well um, that will be very important for how governments interact with each other going forward. Um, I'll be talking about how addressing these challenges will require a whole of society approach. And now that sounds daunting. Uh, but I will close with how it's actually not that daunting. It's in reach, and we've done it before, and we'll do it again. So we're very familiar with this, uh, with this figure. It's the continually rising upward curve of, of temperature or carbon uh, in the atmosphere. It's, it's the uh, telling sign of the climate crisis. But there's been a similar constant curve that's been happening in my lifetime. Um, and it's the nature crisis. This is something uh, called the Living Planet Index, which WWF puts out, and it shows a steady decline of wildlife populations since 1970. And this is not intuitive what this means, so I will, 
before I get into the poly crisis, let me go, just go a little bit deep on this nature crisis and how we, how we got this figure uh, of an almost 70% decline of wildlife populations globally just in my lifetime, because 1970, I was born in 1971, so this represents a, a substantial loss of nature uh, just since I've been alive. So <clears throat> the Living Planet Report is something, it's, it's WWF's flagship report. We produce it every two years um, with primary research partners of the Zoological Society of London and the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis that does a lot of modeling of global systems, um, 90 co-authors from nearly 30 countries, and increasingly focused on solutions. It's been raising the alarm, showing that curve for a while, but we're increasingly focused on these transformative solutions that need to happen. <clears throat> so how do we get this index? How do we that 70% decline? What does that actually mean? Well, the Living Planet Index is calculated from 30, data on almost 32,000 populations representing 5,000 species, over 5,000 species of vertebrates. So animals with backbones, mammals, birds, reptiles, fish, amphibians. Those are the vertebrates. So we have 32,000 populations with data over time. And what's a population? Well, consider a species like the whale shark. So there's a whale shark population that lives in the Indian Ocean, and there's a whale shark population that lives in the Caribbean Sea. They're the same species, but they don't really interact, they don't reproduce with each other, so they're, they're independent in that sense. So if we have data on the whale sharks in the Indian Ocean and the whale sharks in the Caribbean, we can treat that as two populations that go into the data set. But then there's also data on gorillas from Uganda, and there's data on river dolphins from Brazil. So each of these is a separate population, 32,000 of them together, and the Living Planet Index is the average change in the relative abundance of these monitored populations. Now, you can think of this as something like an index fund, like a stock index fund, um, or the Dow Jones, right? The Dow Jones is a single number, and it's intended to give you a sense of how the market is performing. Now, there may be species that are improving and populations that are improving and some that are going down, but the overall market trend, this index, has been going down um, almost 70% since 1970. So a dramatic decline in the abundance of animals. So just populations are getting smaller on average all around the world. Um, and you know, some, some species are becoming more common, like starlings or house sparrows. Like, you know, but that's just one species that's doing really well. In the index, that would only be one data point. So there's still lots of animals out there. There's lots of pigeons and house starlings and, and sparrows. Um, but uh, when you try to get a, 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 an index of the whole totality of wildlife on Earth, it's a very grim prospect. Now, I'm the freshwater lead scientist, and oops, and it's even grimmer in freshwater. It's an 83% decline since 1970. So freshwater, if there's a nature crisis, there's an even more dramatic freshwater biodiversity and nature crisis. Um, but freshwater populations and species are kind of out of sight. They're literally beneath the surface. They're hard to see. Um, and they are not getting the attention of coral reefs or rainforests. But there's a real crisis in freshwater. Now, the nature crisis and the climate crisis are very much intertwined. They're two sides of the same coin. Why? Well, they have a lot of the same drivers, uh, deforestation, unsustainable food and agriculture, um, but the same drivers, but they also need to have the same solutions. They need to be addressed together. 
uh, protection of forests is going to be very important for uh, maintaining wildlife and reversing the decline of nature. Protecting forests is also one of the fundamental things we need to do for climate. Um, and really, solving both of these crises together does require this whole of society approach, including the transformation of big sectors, food, energy, water. And that, of course, that's what I'll be getting to in a moment about how it's not as daunting as it sounds. Um, to revisit the World Economic Forum and what they just came up with, with their risks, and they asked experts um, what do they think were the major risks facing the world in the short term, say two years, and in the longer term, 10 years. And this intertwined nature, climate, and water crisis that I've been talking about pops up in four of the short-term risks. Um, you know, things like uh, cost of living, inflation, and Ukraine are uh, very much at the top of the short term, but then we look at the long term and we see, wow, they have all really moved up to the top. Uh, and then they're adding um, the loss of biodiversity. So that doesn't show up in the short term, but the loss of biodiversity they're putting here in the long term. And, and then right here, this is actually a four. Uh, so let me go through these, because the, I don't think, I don't know if you can read them. So failure to mitigate climate change, failure to adapt to climate change, um, natural disasters and major weather events, the loss of biodiversity, um, and uh, natural resource crises, such as a lack of water or a lack of food. Um, and then, the, so those are all the ones in green. Now, the one in red is actually forced relocation, forced migration. Well, what causes forced migrations is often things like drought or flood. So in a sense, the top six that the World Economic Forum just said are the most important <laughs> risks facing the world. These are the intertwined climate, water, and nature polycrisis. And so let's explore what that actually looks like in a place. So let's look at the Mekong uh, River Basin. So Southeast Asia, and here in, in the shading is the river basin of the Mekong, so all the land that drains into the Mekong. And I'm going to focus uh, on the delta. So where the Mekong flows out into the ocean, it's primarily in Vietnam, um, the Mekong Delta. Now, what, what is a delta? You've probably heard that term before. Um, a delta is where the river meets the sea, and rivers are muddy, rivers are brown. Um, it's because they're carrying a bunch of sediment. They're carrying silt and sand. But when they hit the tidal ocean, they don't have that constant current. It's the current that carries the sediment downstream. When they hit the ocean and the tides and it sloshes back and forth, that sediment drops out. Over time, it builds land. The, the Mekong Delta has been created only in the past 10,000 years, and it's just been created by the river dropping its load of dirt when it gets to the ocean. It's like its job is done, and it drops the dirt, and there it is, and it creates the Mekong Delta. Well, this delta is home to 20 million people. It's one quarter of Vietnam's GDP. It's more than half of a range of agricultural products, and it's 90% of their rice export crop. And Vietnam is one of the top three rice exporters globally. So it is an incredibly important place for Vietnam, but it's, it's actually a globally important source of food. Also, huge amounts of fisheries uh, come out of the delta, um, and lots of biodiversity and species that live there. Um, and a delta, uh, I, I kind of jumped the gun here. So a delta is formed when rivers carry sediment and drop the sediment. You can see here uh, the, the river carrying the sediment. It's distributing it along the coast and dropping it out and creating. Now, a delta needs the constant replenishment of, of, of sediment to persist. 
the, uh, otherwise, the ocean is trying to tear it down. Um, and the sediments are compacting over time. They, they build up, but they're compacting. And so if a delta isn't getting new sediment, it's going to erode, and it's going to shrink and, and sink. Um, and so what's happening in the Mekong is a lot of hydropower development. So this is just one dam. There's, there's actually 80 dams in the Mekong. This is one dam, and it's on a, on a tributary of the Mekong uh, called the Saison River. And that's the dam in the left, and the triangle shows its location. And what this, this is just a very good example of what hydropower dams and reservoirs do, is uh, the, the dam that you see in the lower left, and uh, in, in the upper right photo, the dam is on the left. That's a white line. Now you see the river coming in, and what is it doing? Well, it's dropping its load of sediment. So just like if it had hit the ocean, but now it's dropping its load of sediment in the reservoir. Uh, dams tend to be very efficient traps for sediment. They will capture nearly all the sediment that a river is carrying. Over time, the Mekong has already lost 70% of its sediment. So the delta is, is, is more rapidly eroding because it's not getting that replenishment. And there are proposals to build several more dams that would lead to the 95% loss of all sediment which would essentially seal the fate of the delta. Um, and this is true of deltas around the world. The Nile Delta is fairly rapidly disappearing. Um, so this allows me to talk about this polycrisis, how these are all interrelated. So here we have the Mekong Delta. Well, e even if it didn't have the loss of sediment, it would be dealing with the fact that the sea level's rising. Why? Well, from the uh, World Economic Forum's risk, failure of climate mitigation. That's leading to sea level rise. That's a threat to the delta. Now, one thing they, do, they didn't have, so I didn't put it in bold, but some of our climate mitigation can have negative impacts. So if hydropower is being built uh, as a climate solution, climate mitigation solution, it can be, in the Mekong context, it's actually causing further threat to the delta. So it captures sediment and the loss of sediment to the delta. Now these dams, and you see much more triangles now, these uh, representing dams in the Mekong, these dams also prevent migration of fish. The Mekong is the biggest freshwater fishery in the world. Uh, tens of millions of people depend on it for their primary source of protein. It's an enormous fishery, but much of that fish biomass that's caught is migratory. It's fish that need to move up and down the rivers. As these dams are going in, the migratory habitat is, is being lost. Uh, we're very familiar with that from the West Coast and the, the loss of salmon fisheries uh, from Columbia River, Snake River dams. So declining freshwater fish, that's a biodiversity crisis. That's what um, the, the WEF also said was a major risk. But that is also a natural resource crisis because the loss of food resources. And then as the delta is losing sediment and sea level rise, salt water is intruding into the delta. So now the agriculture and the cities that, that need water, are, their, salt, their water is becoming salty. So it's a water crisis. It's a natural resource crisis of food and water. Um, and now, because the delta has been losing its sediment, it's much more vulnerable to storms and erosion. So now that is what the WEF called uh, natural disaster and extreme weather event, yet another of the major risks facing the world. And all that together is leading to a failure of climate adaptation. Models show that most of the delta could disappear by the end of the century. Remember the 20 million people, the quarter of the GDP of Vietnam, and 90% of the export crop of one of the most important rice exporters in the world. That is a security, that is a global security, food security crisis as well. Um, and then large-scale involuntary migration, yet one more of the WEF's major risks. If 
the delta disappears, that's 20 million people that need to find a, a new place to live, just among the many climate refugees that the world is likely to see from drought, flood, and coastal storms. So let's quickly pivot to solutions, because that was depressing. Um, <clears throat> let's, let's pull back from the brink here. Um, but I'm going to go deep on, on um, hydropower uh, quickly, hydropower around the globe, because it's not just the Mekong. So this is from the International Energy Agency showing what the world needs to do to, salt, to meet that first WEF risk of climate mitigation. We have to get that right. We have to solve the climate crisis and maintain the Earth within stable, uh, with a stable climate, so limiting emissions. And so that is this uh, expansion of renewables that's needed by 2050. And um, you can see that uh, wind, wind and solar are projected to dominate uh, as the world moves towards a, a grid that is 93% renewable. Now, hydropower is a little bit hard to see there, so this next slide really zooms in on the hydropower. So wind and solar are really going to be the dominant forms of generation by 2050, but within that, a little bit buried within that data, is the fact that hydropower is also projected to double by 2050. Well, what does that mean? This is research that WWF led to map, and, uh, to identify and map all the free-flowing rivers in the world. Those are the rivers that are in dark blue. The rivers that are no, no longer free-flowing are in red. So you can see Europe, India, China, and the United States, mostly red, and the blue is concentrated in big rivers of the tropics, the Amazon, Africa, and a couple rivers that remain in Asia, the Irrawaddy and the Salween in Myanmar. Now this is where hydropower dams are proposed. So if you kind of toggle back and forth, you see that the, in red are the proposed hydropower dams. Well, there's very few hydropower dams proposed in the United States because we've mostly built the, the uh, sensible locations, but hydropower dams are proposed in most of those regions where the rivers are still free-flowing. And what will that mean? Well, in yellow are rivers that are currently free-flowing that will no longer be free-flowing um, if those hydropower dams were to be built. And when I say free-flowing, I mean a river that's capable of supporting migratory fish, a river that's delivering sediment to the deltas. So all these values that rivers provide. So to address this, we need this whole-of-society approach. And we need to transform sectors, like the energy sector. Again, it sounds really daunting. But the message here is, we can do this. So let's illustrate how we can do this. Um, so again, here's all the, the free-flowing rivers, all that value that we could lose from rivers if that amount of hydropower were to be developed. Now, if that was essential to solve the climate crisis, maybe that's a trade-off. It is a trade-off that we would explore. We have to get the climate solved, right? That is preeminent. But the question is, is this necessary to solve the climate crisis? So on the right, this is coming also from the International Energy Agency. They say that we need 62,000 terawatt hours uh, a measurement of energy use, 62,000 terawatt hours of renewable electricity by 2050. So each, each little square represents 1,000 terawatt hours that we need by 2050. Well, how much would come from the hydropower that would eliminate all those free-flowing rivers, the 50,000 kilometers of free-flowing rivers that would be lost? Just that, uh, just less than 2%. Now, thinking about those rivers like the Mekong and the Irrawaddy and the tributaries of the Amazon, these really important rivers, um, less than, we would lose half of the remaining free-flowing tropical rivers uh, for less than 1%, uh, a fraction of a, of, of a percent of the needed electricity. So it's a huge trade-off 
that's not actually all that necessary to solve the climate crisis. We can, we can find other ways without giving up. And then as we've seen uh, with the Mekong, we're actually making the effects of climate change worse if we trap sediment and lose deltas. And globally, there's 500 million people that live on deltas. It's about one out of 12 people on Earth lives on a delta. It's, uh, it's, they're really important. Um, now, how is this possible that we can move beyond uh, this hydropower with major impacts? Well, there's been a dramatic cost in the drop of, of the cost of solar and wind, a 90% drop uh, just in the past decade uh, when it comes to solar. It's remarkable. It keeps outpacing predictions of the lowering of cost. It is now the cheapest electricity on the planet. And so we've, we've done some research. We partnered with the University of California at Berkeley, and they have uh, energy modeling experts to look at how, how could we build grids um, that avoid, not all hydropower, but avoid the kind of hydropower that will lead to the loss of deltas like the Mekong. And, and so you know, people say, well, you, it can't just all be wind and solar. You, you know that the sun doesn't shine right, all the time. So yes, we're aware of that. And we, we worked with these energy modelers who build models of whole grids. So it's, it's generation, transmission, and storage. So a grid can be responsive to the electricity demands 24 hours a day. We, we know that electricity fluctuates dramatically during the day, and a grid has to respond to that. So we need to have a diverse grid. But we've modeled that, and we showed that we can have sustainable power systems that avoid those kind of impacts on rivers uh, and reduce impacts on rivers by 90%, and basically for grids that are the same cost. So the same cost to those countries, but without the trade-offs of losing those rivers. And so how did we get this? Well, this is a renewable revolution. The, 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 this wind and solar dramatic drop in cost and the dramatic drop in cost of batteries is making this possible. And it's happening as we speak. Well, how do we do it? It was a whole of society approach. NGOs were advocating for changes in policy and transformations of the energy sector. The government was putting in place incentives and supports for, for R&D, for renewable technologies. And the private sector, uh, responded to these incentives and with their own research and, and economies of scale and, and deployment in manufacturing, they lowered the cost of solar photovoltaic by 90% in 10 years. So it's a dramatic whole society approach that's producing a renewable revolution that will allow us to address climate mitigation in ways that will be consistent with also helping solve the nature and water crises that we have. So it's a poly crisis. But there are ways of doing it, and we've done it before. And just in closing, just in thinking of the transition to, to a panel of people uh, who are working in Cleveland, you know, Cleveland represents a place where we've done this before. The river burned. We all know that. Um, even before the river burned, uh, Mayor Stokes was already launching efforts to try to, to clean up. And he was already recognizing the importance of environmental equity and the value of a clean environment as an amenity to a city in a post-industrial era. He was pretty visionary about those topics. Um, and, but it did trigger the Federal Clean Water Act. You have a governments, you have NGO advocates, you have the private sector cleaning up. We now have a dramatically transformed river. Uh, we've done it before, whole of society, the, the, the river's cleaned up, the lake is in better shape. We have remaining challenges and challenges are popping up all the time, but we've done it before, so we need to do it again. And what I think about doing it again, I think about the climate challenges that we're gonna face, um, and I think about the equity and access to nature challenges that we have, and there's, there's something that we can do that's a poly crisis. Uh, things like nature-based solutions, we can invest in parks, we can invest 
in river restoration and wetlands all throughout the cities. And groups like the um, Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District is pursuing green infrastructure. Groups like the Nature Conservancy are working on natural infrastructure projects to get nature on our side. When we think about climate change, it seems like the forces of nature are arrayed against us. But when we turn to nature-based solutions, getting wetlands and floodplains to help manage flood risk, we're getting nature on our side too. And if we do them right, they can be built into the fabric of a city. And they can be the part of the amenities that we're going to need to be a competitive city to you know, keep people here and attract populations. Um, so we've done it before, and we can do it again. Thanks. Are these, oh, great. Um, well, a bit of a transition to focus on Cleveland, and we got a really um, intimate sense of what the poly crisis looks like when we're talking about freshwater from Dr. Opperman. Uh, but what we wanted to focus on next is like, so how do we talk about climate change on the global stage? And obviously, you all read the newspaper, so you know that there's this thing called the COP. And just to give you the briefest of historical backgrounds um, on the COP, so this global dialogue has actually been going on for over 50 years. The first human environment conference was held in Stockholm in 1972, and they were already then starting to talk about the impact of human activity on our environment. And 20 years after Stockholm, that's when they had the United Nations Conference on Environment and Development, otherwise known as the Earth Summit in Rio in 1992. And it's at the Rio Summit that the governments and the countries of the world decide on the adoption of what is known as the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, it's a mouthful, UNFCCC, uh, which today has near universal membership. There are 198 countries who have ratified the convention. The number one goal of the UNFCCC, of course, is to reduce emissions. But um, how we actually do this as a global community that was left up to negotiation. And so that's why every year the UN convenes what's known as a conference of parties. That's the COP acronym. Um, and that's where they're trying to figure out how we actually implement the goals of the UNFCCC. And the UN has been doing this every year since 1995. The latest COP, which is COP 27, was held November 6th to 20th in the Egyptian town of Sharm el-Sheikh. And the COP is, of course, now a global event with over 100 of heads of state and government, 35,000 participants, including a delegation of our very own colleagues from Cleveland who are here with us tonight to share their thoughts. We have Michael Jeans, CEO of Growth Opportunity Partners, Stephen Love, Cleveland Foundation Program Director for Environmental Initiatives, and John Middleholzer. Um, the Program Director for Climate and Environmental Justice at the Gunn Foundation. You have their bios in, in your programs. I encourage you to read them. Uh, but for now, I'd like to thank our, our three panelists for being here and jump right into the conversation. And so I thought where I'd like to start is getting from all three of you just a bit of your sense of, so what is it like to attend a COP and to hang out with like your 35,000 new best friends and talk climate? Uh, and, and second part of that, why was it important for you that Cleveland be represented? Maybe we'll start here. Sure. Maybe we won't. <laughs> Overcame that hurdle quickly, so 
the rest is uphill from here. Uh, thank you, and, and I'd like to thank uh, the Council on World Affairs here in Cleveland for inviting us to this discussion uh, and, and the dialogue that was just shared with us a moment ago. Um, you know, this is, this is rich content uh, and ex it extends beyond the academic. Right? This, this is the decisive decade, and so there's some real things that we need to take action on. And, and lastly, I'd like to say uh, I'm glad to see the age diversity in this room. And so it's not just folks like us who are talking about things that will affect this rock well before, well after we're gone. And so many thanks to each of you for being here and the Council on World Affairs for, for creating a, a welcoming environment. So how was Egypt? Amazing, right? So, uh, you know, uh, at a surface level, turns out the pyramids are not somewhere lost in the desert. They're right smack dab in the middle of Cairo, right? There are houses and homes that were built around it. And I, I, just, I think that's fascinating that someone can wake up and see such a wonder uh, you know, right, right outside of their, their windows. Uh, but, but getting to what COP meant for, to, to me and why it was important for Cleveland to be there, you know, I think sometimes um, we can think and imagine a bit in a parochial way. If we're not careful, we can think in insular ways and we can plan then for insular solutions. And one of the reminders of the largesse that you shared at COP is that we are connected and, and our solutions are connected. And so while I might have a bright idea in Cleveland as it relates to climate, it's an empty set if it doesn't connect to the other solutions that are happening at a global level. And so moment by moment, uh, COP, the COP experience re reminds us of that. It reminds us that what happens anywhere has an effect somewhere. And so as we think about being uh, heavy producers in the global north, it adversely affects the global south. And if we think too parochially, then we are sending things downstream and we're not taking responsibility for it. And so now we have an opportunity to take responsibility for some of the harm that we've caused downstream. And lastly, I'll say, um, being at COP allows us to take this out of the classroom. And so uh, where the Paris Accords have a commitment, a global commitment of reducing uh, the, our, our, our temperature, our core temperature increased to two degrees Celsius, you'll hear from island nations that say, yeah, that's great, but at a degree and a half Celsius, we're gone. And so can you do a bit more, right? And so, and as much as COP is a beautiful exercise of what life really is when we all get together in a room, uh, it's also an accountability. And it, and it forces each of us to think us outside of uh, our own environments, pardon the pun, and, and in a more global way. And I'll share something, a saying that a dear friend of mine has shared with me. His grandmother told him this when he was a kid and he's never forgotten it and you'd think she was my grandma. And, and she would tell him, uh, she'd say, Ed, it's our responsibility to plant trees in whose shade we will never sit. It's our responsibility to plant trees under whose shade we will never sit. And I think COP just represented that. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, Stephen Love at the Cleveland Foundation. And just want to once again echo my sentiments of gratitude uh, to Karina and to the uh, Ambassador Hodges and to the Council of World Affairs team for the opportunity to, to speak tonight and, and certainly to all of you for, for being here and uh, being part of what I hope is an engaging conversation in, in a few moments. Um, I think to reflect on, on the experience, I mean, I think Michael summed it up pretty well. Uh, it was amazing, uh, overwhelming, 
uh, to have nearly 35,000 people in the same space, venue, and 197 countries represented, and I don't know how many languages I heard, but I heard a lot of languages uh, across the, the hall and across the rooms. Um, but yet, I, it, it felt um, unifying, in a sense, to be in a space where the global community was coming together on climate. And I can't think of many other issues where the global community uh, effectively comes together. And it's not to say that we've effectively come together on climate yet, but the fact that the global community was aligned in the room, uh, I think, really just shows the power of, of this issue and the willingness to come together around it. Um, why, why was it important for, for our region, um, Cleveland and, and our folks, to, to be there? Well, I think, you know, certainly uh, Jeff uh, Opperman's comments, you know, made it clear we don't have time to waste. You know, there's, there's urgency to act and climate impacts are affecting us here in Northeast Ohio, uh, even if they may not always be as, as um, poignant and disastrous as they are in other parts of the world. They're here and they're going to get worse. Um, but I think it's that point that Michael raised around that sort of globally aligned uh, in terms of thinking about the solutions where we can really begin to layer on and think about how the work that we impact at the local level really has a connection to the global work that's taking place. Um, COP not only is the venue for the diplomatic negotiations, but it really provides a collaborations, almost a collaboration lab uh, for the world on, on climate solutions. And so it was really uh, just an incredible opportunity for, for our local leaders who represent you know, the philanthropic community, uh, the business community, uh, our local government, uh, to really be in that space and to see what on the ground solutions look like in other parts of the world and how we could potentially uh, align our work and our action agenda here in Northeast Ohio. And I'd also say it matters because Ohio and our region ultimately matters to the global climate equation when we talk about greenhouse gas emissions. And uh, I won't steal uh, John's thunder. Uh, I'll, I'll let him uh, elaborate a little bit more on that, but as to why we think it's really important for us to take action here in this region. Thank you. Uh, well, good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for coming out tonight, Karina. Thank you. Thanks to Cleveland Council of World Affairs. Uh, I am the veteran of the group, so uh, this was my second one, and it's still completely overwhelming. Um, it's, I mean, if you could just imagine a venue where you've got that many people from that many countries with that many languages, and then every once in a while, John Kerry walks by, and you're like, wait, <laughs> I kind of know that guy. Um, it's just it's just that kind of a venue, and it is really interesting. Um, but I'll go to the to, to why. I mean, I, I am a broken record on this. Ohio, uh, in the last two years, has become the third largest emitter of greenhouse gas gases in the United States, third. We are third only to California and Texas. So think about the populations of those two states versus ours, and we are the third largest emitter. If we were our own country, we would be the 26th largest emitter in the world. What we do here matters. We can't solve climate change without Ohio and without Cleveland. And that's why it was so important for me, having gone to Glasgow two years ago, I came back wanting to bring leaders from Cleveland because we have to be in this global conversation. There is no way to solve this crisis across the world without us. We just can't do it. We are that important in the conversation. 
And that's really why I wanted to go. It's why I was so thrilled to be joined by the leaders who came with us, because we have to be part of that. And then, Jeff, thank you so much for mentioning Mayor Stokes and his leadership, because that's the other side for me, is we've led this before. Right? We had one of the greatest river restorations in the world, and nobody knew how to do it back then. Right? We didn't actually know what we were doing. Lake Erie was declared dead. <laughs> there was no life in Lake Erie, and yet we have made a complete comeback. We led the world in that comeback, and when we did that, we helped start the modern environmental movement in that leadership, and I really believe Cleveland needs to be at the forefront of leadership on climate. Um, <laughs> um, well, so John, I think that sort of segues to my next question is, it's hugely important for Cleveland to be in this global conversation but how is the global conversation going? Let's be honest. Uh, because when we've all read, you know, sort of the news headlines coming out of COP27, and yes, the uh, agreement on the establishment of the loss and damage fund, that was a landmark for, for many, many reasons, and that was viewed as a breakthrough, especially for developing countries. But when you look at no progress made on any further emission reductions. Yes, the Paris goal is two degrees Celsius increase, but really it's 1.5 to stay alive for a lot of these small island developing states. And then even before COP, uh, you know, Greta Thunberg was like, oh, this is greenwashing, I'm not going. So having been in this massive intergovernmental civil society, everyone party at COP, what, is your, what are the pros and cons of this process? Um, yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, the first thing I will say is I don't yet understand the lingo or the logo. It's mostly diplomatic speak. I just know the word protocol is used a thousand times a day, and I've gotten used to using that word. Um, I mean, just a couple of things for all of you to understand. The, the signatories of the Paris Climate Accord must all agree on any communication that comes out of a COP. 197 nations must come to consensus to issue anything in this process at all. I don't even understand how that is possible, and yet it happens every single year. Somehow, 197 countries meet for two weeks and duke it out and come out with agreements. I think that's amazing in and of itself. Like I think we have to acknowledge that that is really an amazing thing that happens every single year. It's a long, arduous process. It includes all of the diplomatic nuances. It's hard. But we're still doing it, and I don't want to lose sight of that. I mean, the fact that 197 countries got together in 2015 and agreed that this was the single most important issue that they should all work collectively together on was remarkable. I never thought that would happen, and it did. And so I think there's a lot of ways to sort of talk about the process and all the things that are wrong with it, but I don't want to lose sight of the fact that the entire world has agreed that this is the single most important issue to work on, and they come together for two weeks every single year to do that. And they invite civil society, folks like us, to be part of that process. We can push them, we can yell at them, we can tell them they're not doing enough, and they open the door to us and allow us to do that. And I, I have to give them credit for that. You know, I also want to face the facts. I mean, national governments across the world have failed us. They're not moving fast enough. They don't have a sense of urgency. I include our own government in that. I'm glad we got the Inflation Reduction Act. That's great. It's not even close to what we actually need to do if we want to keep it 1.5. So what also was really interesting to me in this whole process is how important subnational governments are. And that is UN speak again for city, states, and regions. And we are in a city that has both a mayor and now a county executive who are deeply committed to climate, 
and who are working every day to really address climate here in Cleveland. And so while there are lots of things to complain about the process, it's still important that every single country is at the table and that they do this every year for two years. And every one of the environmental ministers from those countries are there and present and doing this. And then we have the opportunity at our level, at the local level, both as civil society delegates and as local elected officials to push and to keep pushing and to keep working. And so, you know, it's an arduous process. It's wild to lay people like me, but it's still happening. And I, I really don't want to lose sight of that because the world could have just simply said, we can't do it, it's too hard, we're not, gonna, we're not gonna try to do anything, but they don't. And they do it every single year and they come back and they work harder each year. Um, so maybe that's a great segue to talk about the role of civil society since all three of you, and local entities, the subnational uh, participation, um, and because that, that's how all three of you participated. And I'm just wondering, how does the involvement of civil society in, with their advocacy and their presence and the continued pu you know, pushing issues, how does that help connect climate change to other pressing social concerns such as human rights? Um, you know, racial justice, women's rights, children's rights, all these other issues, and how does that fit into issues that concern us here in Cleveland? And I don't know if Steve and Michael, you may want to start. Um, that's a great. That's a great question. Um, and I and I think you know John John spoke to a little bit, but you know at, at a national at a national government's level, you know the the negotiations are are moving at a uh, pace that requires significant consensus. But in, at the interim. Uh, the subnationals are, are moving and continuing to move, and I think it's because there's a realization that climate is such an intersectional issue. Um, you know, I certainly echo Jeff's uh, comments earlier as well that you know th th this impacts not only our biodiversity, it impacts our social cohesion, it impacts our economies, um, and so when we think about how we can act, it's thinking about how to lead with solutions that are then intersectional in nature. Um, and when we think about our region in particular, you know, we have, again, the birthplace of the environmental movement, largely the environmental justice movement, um, but also then some of the most significant uh, existing environmental disparities and health disparities uh, today. Uh, and largely that disparity can be traced back to our decades and decades of structural racism uh, in this region. And then when we look at where climate vulnerabilities are going to be uh, most significant, it's going to be in our uh, communities of color and in our low-income communities where those vulnerabilities are already taking place. So when we think about trying to develop solutions and support a trajectory forward, how do we think about aligning then our goals on climate with our goals around uh, economic and environmental justice uh, and social justice? Um, and so this becomes very quickly then a, a, an issue that we need to begin to think about in a, in a convening of, of, of multiple sectors and partners to be at the table together, whether that's the public sector, the private sector, uh, philanthropy, the nonprofit advocates community. And so you can see how, uh, I guess, incredibly important the role of the civil society is to really generating the solutions that are then you know, that the problems are really multidimensional, uh, but the solutions have to be multidimensional. And I think it really became clear to us just in, in the many, many sessions and, and programs that we were able to participate in at COP, uh, how that's already taking place or being carried out in other parts of the world and even other parts of our own country, um, and how we can hopefully uh, learn from that type of alignment and cross-sector collaboration here at home. Yeah, I, I'd agree with, with uh, Stephen. 
And, and I would add, being a cop was such a different environment as we looked at how climate was being addressed from a solutions perspective. And so in the United States, you know, there's you know, been this dialogue about environmental justice and how do we diversify those who are a part of the solutions of climate? And then you get to COP. <laughs> And you see people of every ethnic group, every age group, every gender, and, and, and every definition of gender, and they're leading change where they are. And so it's one of those other things that we come back and we have to ask ourselves, then why are we still struggling? Why are we still struggling with the things that the Constitution said we are granted just by our birth as citizens? And it's stifling us from being able to tackle these global issues that are compounded in disadvantaged communities, and those communities are only disadvantaged, they're only marginalized, because we stopped investing in them and invested in the margins, right? It, it, those communities are what the United States has created them to be. And so we can, when, when we talk about environmental justice, it only works if we cease each group from talking about others as those who are over there. Those people who are subject to and whether it's subject to the good or the bad, we only solve this if we can begin to see ourselves in each other. And so to get back to some of the content that John shared, you know, COP is important uh, for so many reasons, but we're good at what we practice. And if 197 countries, is that it, can get together and find consensus on things that matter, they've been practicing this now uh, for some time. And so we have to get into the, the habit of looking at challenges that are the challenges of others and, and, and working as diligently as if they were the direct and imminent challenges for us and our children because the reality is they will be. Right? We're connected in such a way that we don't have the luxury of, of denying the, the, the um, chart that Jeff shared from 1970 to now and looking at the, the degradation of, of species and, and you know, these things are happening over time, and maybe 30 years ago we had some, now we didn't have the liberty, but it was taken to not act. Well, now we all have to act, and it's every, it goes from what you decide to drive to how we consume energy. Uh, you know, I, the, 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 the sun provides 430 quintillion joules of energy in one day. And so I'm a science nerd. That's that's 430 with 18 zeros behind it, right? I had to look up jewels. I didn't see jewels since eighth grade. That's, that's every day. Our entire human race across the globe only consumes 410 quintillion joules of energy in a year. Why are we leaving so much energy that could be consumed responsibly on the table? The abundance is there, and so until we depoliticize, and until we see ourselves in each other, we're actually willing to cause harm to our families and our neighbors and their descendants for things, quite frankly, in the grand scheme of things that don't really matter. That was very well put. Um, and this will be my last question before we entertain your excellent questions. I'm sure you have many, so get ready. My colleagues will come by with a microphone. Just put your hand up. And I guess real quickly for all three of you, just to conclude, you know, based on your, 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 your COP experience, how should we in Cleveland start thinking about this whole climate issue differently and in what ways? And, and where do we go from here? And, and John, maybe we'll start with you. Um, sure. Well. 
I think first of all, just recognizing that we are a large part of the problem. Like we, we have to admit that, say that out loud and recognize that Cleveland and Ohio are a large part of the global problem of climate change. But I want to flip that and just say we have an opportunity to be a large part of that solution. And, and that's really what, you know, I think, Michael, you said it really well. Um, there's a huge opportunity. You know, the world is looking for leadership on this. Like, we're all struggling with how do you transition the entire economy away from fossil fuels and into a different economy that is based on clean energy and is no longer, is completely decarbonized. No one has figured that out. And we can lead. And I think about our history and how we've led other economic transitions and the role we've played in the American Industrial Revolution. Like, we have done this before. And I guess that's what I want to leave everybody with is like, I am really optimistic that not only can Cleveland be part of the solution, but that we can be a place where people come to figure out what we've done and then replicate it elsewhere across the world. We have the juice. No, I don't know. <laughs> Summation. No, uh, I, echoing everything uh, John said, I, I would just, I think, add to that, that, you know, to a degree, the, the markets, you know, the markets are moving. The puck is going towards decarbonizing our economy, towards the clean energy transition. But what I think we have not only then the the assets to really be a leader in that transition, uh, but also we can help to really tell the the story and lead the solution on how to do that equitably. We we know that those economic transitions left a lot of people behind. Uh, the whether it was the industrial revolution or the the chip revolution. Um, and so in Cleveland, we're, we're no stranger to that. We've left plenty of our, our citizens and residents behind. And so how does this become the economic generating opportunity? Uh, how does this transition really get flipped and really think about climate as the perhaps the grandest economic development opportunity this city has had since the Industrial Revolution uh, when we talk about really transitioning every aspect of our, of our economy? So. Uh, to John's, to echo John, I'm, I'm optimistic that uh, if we can align all sectors and, and build a collaboration, uh, that we can do that and we can show the world. Yep. I'd just add that we need to reimagine community. Uh, we need to look at community a bit differently and, uh, and how we live and how we consume together. Uh, secondly, uh, I would offer that sustainability uh, should no longer be that department that's down the hall or on the other floor. Everything that we do as individuals, as employees, as citizens, sh we should be asking a couple of questions. And among them are, well, how is this affecting our organization? Is this sustainable? And secondly, how are we affecting everyone? Not just the top layer, not just the upper income, not just certain parts of town, but is it in fact equitable? and remind ourselves that equity only means fair, right? Uh, last thing I'll say is, I, I love this room. I love like, who chose to come here tonight and connect with the Council on World Affairs. You saw something about this conversation that had enough of you in it, not just to be bystanders or listeners, but the way you folks are leaning in, it's with intentionality. And so what I would ask is that you don't let everyone else lead. And for those of you who are younger than me, <laughs> and we keep telling you you're leaders of tomorrow, yeah, forget that. You folks have been leading for a while. You've changed a lot of buying trends in the world, and you're not done now, so please don't sit climb it out.
Fantastic. We'll have an opportunity to take questions now. Please catch my eye or raise your hand and wait for the microphone. I'm going to come over here first. Hello, uh, my name is Michelle King, and sitting next to me is Sean Payne. We're both Cleveland Foundation Public Service Fellows, and we're placed at City Hall and as well as uh, City Council. So this is a good question following up to what you just spoke to. Um, I'm curious if you have any specific advice to those of us that are younger professionals, newer to our roles, um, newer to the field in general, that have limited some limited experience but also not a lot of authority not in our positions for super long what advice would you give to us to make an impactful change in our departments and in the city all right it's the right question right because you don't just want to go someplace to mark time and so what i'd start with is um, there's some companies that are showing more corporate responsibility uh, but who you work for can affect your view and lens to the company. And so look for someone who's willing to coach and mentor you and not hold back. Someone who has the corporate values that they say you should possess, but their personal values are aligned with yours as well. Because somewhere in that construct, there's a cultivating environment for you to grow and, and a healthy place for you to grow. Lastly, um, you as an employee is not the beginning and end of your corporate contribution. And so as you think about how you want your career to be shaped or how you want to provide for your, your livelihood, uh, think about the competencies that it would take for you to be in a place or series of places long enough that when you look back, you're satisfied. You have the benefit of putting impact as one of the top three requirements that you have for yourself and the place that you work that some of us didn't necessarily have decades ago. Impact was not one of those things. And so I, I think you have an advantage. And I, and I would say demand it, because you're in a position to do so. Uh, a question, really, of the whole panel, and that is, um, uh, given the primacy of the carbon crisis, and the trade-offs associated with the alternatives until such time as we get robust, large-scale battery storage, what's your view of uh, nuclear power as an alternative? Um, that, that's uh, fraught territory for someone who works for WWF. There's yeah, part, part of our network, like, interestingly, um, WF Germany was almost founded on an anti-nuke position in the 70s. Um, now, across the border in France, they embraced nuclear power, and there's something like 70% nuclear, and they have a bunch of hydropower, and France has one of the cleanest economies in the world, I think, one of the, probably one of the cleanest advanced economies in the world. Um, <clears throat> One thing I've heard from people who are much more expert in energy than I am is that at the moment, wind and solar are dropping so fast. Um, and, I, and I realize you mentioned batteries because you're already getting to that, the point about base load and, and you know, uh, firming up the grid. And uh, th that is true. Um, that nuclear has been very constrained by its costs. And arguably, maybe that cost is because of the 
extra regulatory scrutiny it gets. On the other hand, we probably all feel really good about lots of extra regulatory scrutiny on, on nuclear. So um, I, I know that some people are fairly optimistic about smaller next generation nuclear that will be a bit more modular to create rather than each nuclear plant being a one-off design. And there are people who think that nuclear uh, actually could make a renaissance. All I'll say is, and I do think that, for example, WWF is kind of open-minded. They're, they're kind of seeing where it's going to go. Um, and I think there's, we have a group right now that's kind of studying our policy on, on nuclear. So it, at least it's showing an open-mindedness that we should be continually thinking about nuclear in the context of the, the climate crisis and energy needs. But I'd be interested in others. Oh, sure, you're going to make me take this one? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think for sure we can't get to our carbon goals closing existing nuke plant. Like, that, like we've got to figure out the existing nuclear fleet, how we keep that nuclear fleet going. Um, and I think Germany is learning this the very hard way right now in real time. So, you know, that to me is something that we have to do. We, we, we really can't get to where we need to go in our reductions if we close every nuclear plant today. I, I do think to your point, I mean, the, the question is always cost. And at, nuclear is such a high cost in large part because of the regulatory constraints. But again, as you said, we need those regulatory constraints. But I think there are other alternatives other than nuclear based on cost. It isn't my personal concern about nuclear or where you put the waste or any of that. It's simply when you look at cost of other technologies, they're far cheaper, and I mean, wind farms, other things like that, just pencil out so much cheaper than nuclear and can be built so much quicker given the regulatory pieces that if we're truly looking at 2030, which we all are, right now we gotta focus on all the renewables we can. Maybe that next generation nuclear comes along in the 2040s, and that's something that we think about as we look at the 2050 goals, but I think in the near term, it's gotta be all renewables all the time. It's the only way we're going to get to those reductions we have to get to by 2030. All right. Uh, so my question is mainly for the Clevelanders. Um, so you went to this conference. They came out with some goals. So how are they being implemented in Cleveland? Do you have any like specific examples, maybe something that's been done that you're really proud of, maybe something that's in the works that you're excited about? Yeah, great, great question. Um, I think what's what's really exciting is that you know we we've for a long time here in this region. I think we've we've been thinking about and and planning and and strategizing how we're going to take action uh, on on issues like climate, um, but we haven't fully invested yet and taken that uh, that next step forward. I think at the same time we have this really really long and rich history of public private uh, partnership and collaboration across sectors on on a number of issues whether that's uh, you know education reform or or building a, a you know regional economic development strategy um, but how do we really marry those two together um, and I think coming out of the COP you know what's exciting is we have now uh, you know the a real enthusiasm from the public sector from the private sector. Um, coming together and really saying this is a top-line priority that requires that same level of collaboration as, as some of the other issues that we've navigated in the past. Um, and I think what's really exciting about uh, this moment in time today is uh, the federal funding opportunity through the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Bill uh, potentially provides the, uh, the funding to really blueprint 
uh, and drive forward some of that that 20 plus years, uh, frankly, of, of planning uh, that we have exercised here in this region. If we can align the planning with the collaboration with the dollars, uh, I think it's really an opportunity for us to advance projects like uh, microgrids, projects like electric transportation infrastructure, projects like uh, community solar and, and solar accessibility. Um, I'd, I'd love for my colleague uh, to, to weigh in as well about some of the, the types of vehicles that uh, can help drive uh, those projects and, and move those projects forward. Sure. Th thank you, Stephen. So uh, I'm, I head up an organization that uh, thank you to my colleagues on the, 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 the panel here and, and John Mitterholtzer specifically, uh, who had this wild idea of creating a green bank. And so we did that in 2020. We're focused on infrastructure, on a green bank, on infrastructure, uh, not only uh, financing projects that are green, but creating a, a, a large and, and robust platform. Uh, you asked the question, you know, what can we point to and what are we looking forward to? I can give you a sneak peek on something that's similar to uh, an energy campus. Uh, you know, think 50 acres or more of all things sustainable. Um, to John's point, you know, not leaving out, uh, you know, any real sustainable or renewable application, but the R&D of it. Think of a building dedicated to AI where there's also a, a, a higher education is present and healthcare is there, but everything that's there, restaurants, there's there's a, a housing component, it's all clean, right? And so there's innovation in it and, and it'll create between seven and 10,000 jobs, right? That's that's one of the things, not, not only was it the result of some international travel to help learn and solve for some of these persistent challenges, but going to COP helped pull it together. And, and so that's uh, something that I'd say lean in. And if you want to hear or learn more about that, you know, give me your information or, or, or take mine. How do you sell this idea to a person who might be working a job and a half can, and says, I only have time to worry about me and my family. I just don't ca ca have time to care whether uh, species are being extinct or not, or what's going on anyplace else. How can you pull this person uh, into all this? So, yeah, it's a great question about getting people engaged on these issues. Um, I, I think a lot of what we've been talking about really falls under the, the broad umbrella of economic opportunity as opposed to economic burden. And I think that you'll, you'll hear a shift, uh, or there should be more of a shift in how the, the media covers climate change from the costs of, of becoming uh, low emissions to the opportunities and, and the investments. Um, and I, I think that is a shift. It's an investment in future growth. It's an investment in clean growth. and all of the dramatic co-benefits that come from moving away from a fossil fuel dominated world, health benefits. Um, and so that's one way is, is, you know, just to not put it in terms of esoteric species or, or climate and temperatures, but to put it in, in the, the term of economic opportunities. And maybe we're kind of 
getting lucky on this one, that it's evolving so quickly that it's becoming an economic opportunity. Uh, you know, arguably, we as a species should be willing to make sacrifices uh, for these tough challenges in our own best interest, but that would be short-term sacrifices. We don't seem to be very good at making sacrifices. We, we really don't. There's not a huge track record of that or of thinking dramatically altruistically. So the renewable revolution and these dramatic drops in costs and the shifting of costs towards opportunities is maybe happening just in time to rescue us. I'd quickly say uh, for those folks who have those that high, that first level of hierarchy of needs that are so pervasive, it's because we've left them out, to, to Stephen's point earlier. And so I can't ask them to solve the problems that we've created for them. So we have to be willing to carry water for others long enough that they can see the liberty and actually have the liberty that's granted to them. We have to be willing to do that. And when we do that, I think what we find is that nobody wants to be left behind, and no one wants to drink dirty water, and no one wants to, to, to breathe in contaminated air. But for those of us, for whatever set of events and reasons, that we have the opportunity to do that for others, let's, let's begin to sacrifice. Let's want to do it because it pays dividends in the end. And, and I, I think we'll see participation. Lastly, we're seeing some structural opportunities to um, incentivize lower income persons and disadvantaged persons. That's where philanthropy and government can work with private sector and civic sector so that we can incentivize in a way that reduces expense and drops a little more to the bottom line for those households. Um, you guys mentioned how minority groups or poor um, neighborhoods in Cleveland are one of the most affected by climate crisis or problems in Ohio. I was just wondering, it actually relates to the last question, how do you get those people to care or even know? Because I know a lot of people in these neighborhoods don't even know about climate change and they have so much else, uh, other things going on that they don't care in a sense. So it's like, are there any organizations for minority groups or anything that these people in these lower income neighborhoods can do to firsthand like, find out climate change is a, a serious issue for them? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think, I think part of it is really leading with where folks are and meeting folks where they are. Um, and in many cases, that's probably not this conversation, right? It, it's a conversation about, um, you know, basic needs, you know, getting, getting food on the table, uh, education, healthcare, um, a future, you know, and, and I think at the end of the day, if we can really focus and frame this around the economic opportunity and also frame this in the intersection of health, right? When we think about uh, issues like air quality, we can potentially solve air quality and uh, greenhouse gas emission reductions when we think about issues like um, planting trees, uh, when we think about uh, electric buses, for example. So, so we, can, we can actually, or, or I should even say uh, multimodal like uh, bike, bike lanes and bike infrastructure. So like, you know, we can, if we can think about bridging the issues in a way that addresses, uh, you know, community health and community well-being and then individual well-being and individual health, um, I think that's, that's a big part of the, the solution as opposed to talking about um, here's the climate crisis, here are the impacts that are going to affect you. No, we need to work with community and ultimately develop solutions that are led by and, and with the community um, and then ultimately tie those together with, with our other goals as, as a region.
Um, there's a great group in Cleveland, Environmental Health Watch. They're fabulous. They're run by a woman named Kim Foreman. And for the last decade, Kim has been having conversations across Cleveland neighborhoods about climate. And what Kim has been telling me for years is these communities already know what is happening in their communities. No one's listening. Like, that's the problem. And so, you know, I, I really do think that in communities that have these greatest environmental impacts, they all know what's happening. They, they know, and it's a large part, I think, and particularly in philanthropy, our job to help them <laughs> be heard. I think that's a really big part of that. But I do want everyone to know about this group because Environmental Health Watch is an amazing organization. It is led by an amazing leader in Kim Foreman, and that is a group that does many things, uh, as their name would imply. But one of them has been to have a decade's worth of conversations about climate change right here in Cleveland. Very quickly, this is an energy transition, and that is innovative, right? And given the level of funding that the Inflation Reduction Act provides, it's substantive. Typically in our country, we don't, we don't invest early in innovation in poor communities. And so part of my work is to ensure that we're making these investments there, that those communities become hubs, and the clustering effect happens around that. And if we can do that, we can connect our cities to where we've sprawled. If we make those early investments where we've sprawled, I, I hasten to say the, the benefits and the participation will likely not find its way back to our cities. So, so hold me accountable because that's a large part of my scorecard. This will be our last question. Gentlemen, thank you so much for tonight's conversation. Dr. Opperman, my question's for you, and I'd like to welcome you to Cleveland, and thank you for being here tonight. Uh, as you shared the map of the Mekong River Valley, I couldn't help but think of Garrett Hardin's treatise, The Tragedy of the Commons, uh, where no one is incentivized to give up or sacrifice part of their share, their ability to, to really freely take advantage of the water resources, the hydropower opportunities, I'm wondering if you can share with us a solution maybe or examples of successes in freshwater areas where they've shared a resource or given up some of their access to make sure that the resource is healthy or, or therefore future generations is managed sustainably. And if that idea or example can also suggest how we might as developed communities sacrifice some of what we do so that we all might benefit and be sustainable in the future. Thank you. So um, there was a, a professor named Eleanor Ostrom who um, I think maybe even won a Nobel Prize for her work on the tragedy of the commons and, and refuting some of it, because um, the tragedy that the commons holds that people will always overrun a resource, that a common pool resource. Uh, and, and there are examples of it, uh, for sure. Um, but Eleanor Ostrom's work was seeking examples of where communities had organized collectively. It wasn't required to be a regulatory approach from top down, but where communities who had access to a common pool resource managed it. Um, I was just reading um, in preparation for, for another event, uh, all about Western water and the droughts and irrigation. And, and the, the, the commentator observed that 
irrigation has generally followed the tragedy of the commons more than what Eleanor Ostrom has said communities. But there's a couple examples uh, of, of groups, including uh, uh, the irrigation system that evolved on, on, on the island of Bali was a, a, an example of a very community uh, bottom-up sharing of resources um, in a way that everybody had access. So th there are some examples. It's, it has not been, but you know, the Western U.S. is is th this uh, first in time, first in right. So if you got there, you put a claim and said, "This, you know, I'm going to take half this river," and then the next person took half of the half, and you know, so on down until you have junior rights who who don't, you know, their, their rights get lost if there's ever uh, a decline in water. Um, but and just to go back to the Mekong real quick. Um, there's been some progress. So there, you know, there's these dams that are being proposed um, that would be very problematic uh, for the sediment, for the delta, for the migratory fish. But Cambodia recently suspended or canceled two dams on the Mekong that really would have been destructive. And they did it because they recognized uh, that with climate change and with droughts, that these dams would have been failing to deliver electricity during the times when they need it most, which is during droughts. And that solar, in fact, would be at its strongest capacity during droughts. Um, and so there, there are some promising signs of governments making some good decisions uh, about you know, a river as a shared resource to allow it to, to remain free-flowing.